of a sermon series that we've been working through for the last couple of months entitled, I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That, Finding Joy in the Inconvenience of Discipleship. Um, This series is based on the premise that not everything that Jesus said is easy to swallow. Um, Not everything Jesus said is palatable. Um, And so Jesus said things like, love your enemies. Jesus said things like, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And and we have a few things that we can do with the words that Jesus said. If you view Jesus as nothing more than a good teacher, then you can treat the Bible like any other book and you can just hang on to the fortune cookie statements that you like and just trash the rest. But the problem is Jesus didn't leave room for that. Jesus professed to be God the Son. Jesus professed to be able to forgive you of your sins. Jesus professed to be able to give you eternal life. Jesus professed that if you've seen him, You've seen the Father. Jesus didn't leave space for us to call him a good teacher and nothing more. And so borrowing from C.S. Lewis's uh, Lord, Liar, Lunatic language, um, we, we have three options. We can either call Jesus a crazy man for saying things like that, for saying he could forgive your sins and give you eternal life. He's just the next cult leader on the scene. Or we could call Jesus uh, the true father of lies, the devil of hell for saying things like that, which just aren't true. Or we can profess to call him who he says he is, which is namely Lord and God, as we bend our knee to him in glad submission. So the hope is, as we work through this morning's passage, that you would find yourself professing Jesus to either be crazy, a liar, or my hope for you, that you would bend your knee to him and call him Lord and God as you bend your knee to him in glad submission. And if you're not, if you are a Christian, my hope for you is that um, once again, we would find ourselves submitting to more and more of the authority of the scriptures, that we wouldn't just pull out the text that we don't like and, uh, and pay attention to the ones that we do, but rather that um, we would submit ourselves uh, gladly to all of Scripture because Jesus is king and he said these things, and we take seriously what our good king says. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verses 42 through 50. This morning, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats nearby in front of you, under the basket there. You can grab that Bible and open up to Mark chapter 9. Take that Bible with you if you don't own a Bible. That's our gift to you. Love to know that you are the owner of a Bible if you don't have one. Let me read beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 42. It says this. These are the words of Jesus. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that you didn't just reveal yourself um, in a general way through creation. Although you did, when we look at the stars, when we look at the sun, when we look at the moon, when we look at mountains and beaches and valleys and streams, we see your fingerprints all over that but you were kind to us in revealing yourself more specifically in your word and in the person and work of Jesus. And we thank you for that this morning. Pray that a passage which is um, not very palatable to most of us would become palatable by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
you would do great things as a result of our time spent in this passage this morning for your glory and our joy. Would you do that, God? We ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to begin with a question this morning for all of us to wrestle with. And the question is this. What what are you serious about? What do you take seriously in life? And I think we could fill in the blank with a number of things, right? For some of us, it's a significant other. We take our spouse, uh, the person that we're dating, very seriously. We invest time and energy into that relationship. For others of us, it's our kids. They demand much of us, and we give them what they demand. For others, it's work, it's career, and so it's from uh, one project on to the next, on to the next, on to the next, and we just keep going, um, wearing ourselves out with work. For others, it's the pursuit of the perfect home, and so it's the next accent piece, the next piece of decor, the next piece of furniture that we've got to, to get our hands on in order to move toward the goal of this perfect home that we're trying to create. For others, it's outside of the home. It's the yard. It's the the well-manicured lawn that we invest our time and our energy into. For others, it's sports, and there is no off-season because we move from one sport to the next, and the calendar just continues to rotate on and on. For some of us, it's our image, and so we spend a lot of time looking in the mirror and trying to fix what we don't like about what we see. For some of us, it's health and fitness, And so it's high up on the list of of things that we think about as to what the next workout is going to be and how we're going to regiment that over the course of the next week or two. For others, it's money. It's the bottom line of what's sitting in your bank account, what's in your 401k that demands your attention and your time and your energy. Paul Tripp says this. He says, what you name as serious claims you. It claims your time. It claims your energy. It claims your money claims your thoughts and your desires and your words and your actions. So let me ask the question again. What are you serious about? What do you take seriously in your life? Because Jesus is going to spend nine verses making the case that we should take sin very seriously in our lives, that that should be really high up on the list. And he's going to do so by way of some of the most disturbing images in all of the Bible. So we're going to encounter the image of a person drowning at sea with no hope of a next breath of air. We're going to encounter the image of a person sawing off his or her own hand, his or her own foot, gouging out his or her own eye. And we're going to encounter the image of the unquenchable fire of hell, the land of the undying worm. This is one of the most disturbing passages in all of the New Testament. If ever I've encountered a passage throughout the course of this series that I genuinely this week as I was sermon prepping sat with and said, Jesus, I wish you had not said this. It was this week for me. Jesus is making this case that we should take our sin seriously because it affects not only us, but it it affects the community of God, it affects other Christians, and it affects the mission of God, our engagement with non-Christians. And so let let me try my best to unpack what Jesus is doing here, and let me set the stage with a little bit of context. So Jesus has just said something very disorienting to the disciples, namely that the way up is down. What you think is true about God is quite the opposite. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, be a servant to all, Jesus says. And he will establish the pattern for this um, as he heads toward Jerusalem on his way to glory. He's going to gain the cross, or, or the, the throne, I should say, by way of a cross. Jesus will go on to serve us by becoming a ransom for all of us so that we might 
we might have life. And to make his point regarding the setting aside of this, these elitist attitudes amongst the disciples, he takes a small child in his arms. And if you look at verse 37, he says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That children were oftentimes marginalized in ancient societies. They were helpless. They were needy. They were dependent. Jesus is saying, don't look down your nose at them, serve them, which is the last thing you want to do if you're trying to make a name for yourself, right? You step on the weak ones on your way to the top. You don't serve them. Jesus goes on in verses 38 through 41 to make crystal clear that it's not a competition, that we're all on on a team together trying to make much of Jesus. And that, that means within this particular church family, and that means as we try to engage with other churches in the area, that we don't view other churches as the enemy, that if they're looking to point people to Jesus and make much of his person and work, we are for them, we link arms with them, we are all about what they're doing, and within the context of this particular church family, we want to be about the same mission, which is why we use the language of partnership rather than membership. Paul uses that language in Philippians chapter 1, and we believe that that communicates that we're linking arms toward the same goal, that we're on the same team. That's what we're seeking to do from infants in Christ within our congregation to mature believers and everyone in between. And in light of that, we encounter verse 42, where Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The language of little ones here includes not just children, but infants in the face Faith, those who are new Christians, as well as those who are coming back around to the church, those maybe who have lived in a season as the de-church, whether it be hostility toward the church or a bad experience or their own sin that's driven them away. If you come back in and you're new to the church, new to the faith, you're a new Christian perhaps, Jesus is saying something very encouraging to you this morning. This passage teaches that Jesus loves brand new Christians, that Jesus loves little ones in Christ, that you're not a burden, you're not inadequate, you're not deficient, that Jesus loves you deeply, he's for you. We get it in our minds that um, God divides things out into the varsity squad and the JV squad, and so surely God must love community group leaders in our church more than others. Surely he must love those who have gone through the partnership course more than others who haven't. Surely he must love those who are around when the church was first planted more than those who have come along in the last few weeks or months. Surely he must love those who have read the Bible from cover to cover as opposed to those who haven't made their way through yet. Surely he loves those who understand the meaning of big theological words like millennialism and pneumatology and hermeneutics. And some of you are going, what are you saying right now? That's not even English, bro. In this passage, Jesus is saying, I I love new Christians. I love those who are far away like the prodigal son who are being brought back into this party of celebration in the gospel. But if that's you, Jesus isn't waiting for you to read your way through a systematic theology book from cover to cover before he will love you. Are systematic theology books good? Yes and amen. There's much to glean um, from uh, various resources that God has put before us. But the reality is that God doesn't divide his kingdom into those who are on the varsity squad and those who are on the JV squad. That's not how God looks at things. If you think that, you've completely missed it. 
Christianity is a team sport. Jesus loves new additions to the team. He loves them so much that he says, if you cause one of these little ones in the faith to sin, it would be better for you to drown with the broken neck. That's disturbing language. That's strong language, right? This is the line of Judah speaking. This is not the lamb who was slain speaking. This is Jesus, the protector king, not the pacifist speaking here. Um, My wife, somewhere along the way, several years back, started praying on nights that I was gone on trips and she was by herself. She would pray, and the language comes from the book of Revelation, where Jesus is described as both the line of Judah and the lamb who was slain, that Jesus has diverse excellencies in his person, that he is both meek as the lamb and he is courageous and bold and roars as the lion. And my wife would pray, Jesus, will you as the lion of Judah protect me tonight? Will you function in that capacity for me tonight? And we pray that over our daughter every night, that she would feel the presence of the line of Judah in her room as she sleeps, that she would feel protected and safe as Jesus is present there with her. Jesus the lion is speaking, and he says, if you lead new believers and people coming back to the church to sin, you have to deal with the lion. Now, that should be sobering for some of us. The question becomes, what does that look like to lead others to sin, specifically new Christians and those who are coming back to the faith, those who are coming back to the church? How do we do this? I think there are two ways that we do this. The first is through legalism. We add to the gospel. And so we communicate to people who are new in the faith, hey, listen, there are some rules. If you want to be a part of this team, here's what you got to do. You got to do these things. You got to stay away from those things. Taste this. Don't touch that. Don't taste that. Do touch this. Um, there was a, a restaurant uh, in the, the city where I went to college um, for my undergrad, and there's a mellow mushroom right up the street from the university. It was a really strange mellow mushroom, one of the weirdest I've ever seen. Because what would happen is it would go from restaurant during the day to a full-fledged bar at night. So somewhere along the way, the lights would dim. They'd stop serving food. Um, the drinks would become free-flowing, and live band, uh, bands would play live music. It was really, really quite cool, actually. I saw Vanilla Ice on the back end of their career there, along with others who were kind of struggling to still make money in the music industry. Um, it, it was just this weird enigma in the town where I pursued my undergrad, But what happened was Christians began to say, you can go to that restaurant um, as long as it's functioning as a restaurant. But the minute the lights dim, you got to leave because two things might happen. One, your reputation might become tarnished. It might be run through the mud. And then secondly, surely if you stick around, uh, you're going to become an alcohol addict. Number one, you're going to wake up in the back of a pickup truck with lines of coke across your face because you hung out at this place a couple of hours later than you should have. That became kind of the way of thinking. I know that's, that's a little bit hyperbole there, but, but that was how people tend, tended to respond and think. Some of us do that, right? We've, we've been going at this thing called Christianity a little longer than others, and when people are new to the faith, they come in, we begin to communicate not the scriptures to them, but rules on top of the scriptures that would say, this is how you do it. This is how you need to live if you want to become a Christian, if you want to be a Christian, I should say. And a lot of it cannot be found in the scriptures. It's creating rules that you must obey but can't find a Bible verse for. That would be some of, some of our uh, tendencies to err in that direction. But another way that we do it is not by adding to the gospel, but rather by taking away from the gospel. So some of us don't lead people into the ditch of legalism, but rather into the ditch of license. It's an abuse of God's grace. We communicate, do what you want. doesn't matter. God has to love you anyway. 
God is love, God is grace, so just walk all over the blood of Jesus, walk all over his grace in response to it, do whatever you want. As one pastor in our network um, puts it, he says, it's flaunting your liberty like a clown. And there are a lot in the church who do this. They respond to the legalists and they flaunt their liberty in such a way that they drive new Christians, infants in the faith, those who are coming back to the church into the ditch of license. And Jesus says, if that's you, you'd be better off drowned with a broken neck than to lead a new believer into one of those two ditches. Now that sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Like Jesus said that, seriously? I thought Jesus, meek and mild, just held tiny lambs and said really you know, sweet things all the time. This doesn't resonate with us as much as it would have for the disciples. The disciples understood what a millstone was. It was used for grinding grain. And the size of millstones back in those days, you put one of those around your neck and it's sure to break it. This was actually a way that some of the Jews died at the hands of the Romans. Um, those Jews who were considered insurrectionists, opponents, agitators in response to the Roman Empire um, were drowned at the bottom of the sea by way of a millstone, which would have been a horrific death to a Jew if you think about it for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's an improper burial, right? It's not a proper ceremonial burial. When you think of Jesus's death, Jesus didn't have a tomb. And so people were going, what are we gonna do? And, and thankfully, Joseph of Arimathea gifted Jesus a tomb so that he could have a proper burial. That was a big deal for Jews, you don't get a proper burial if you're sitting at the bottom of the sea. You become fish food, right? But then secondly, the Jews were incredibly superstitious. The Jews actually believed in ghosts, which is why when Jesus was seen walking on the water, they professed that. They said, look, it's a ghost. They actually believed in superstitious things. So the idea that you would be at the bottom of the sea hanging out amongst the spirits was a really horrific thing. And that doesn't even take into account the horror of sinking to the bottom of the sea itself without any hope of a next breath. Like we've all seen the movies, right? Whether it be Titanic, um, one of my favorites is a movie by the name of White Squall. Maybe some of you have seen that. That you get those scenes where the, the air is becoming less and less in the cabin and you're trying to, to grasp for your next breath. And we all kind of feel a little bit of the horror of that when we see Scenes like that, it leads to the would you rather game. Would you rather die by drowning or being lit on fire? And we talk about that because that drives our minds into that kind of thinking when we see scenes like that. And Jesus is saying it would be better for you to experience that than to lead someone off of the gospel path into the ditch of legalism or license. So let me ask you a question this morning. In light of that verse, are you pointing people to Jesus or are you leading people into one of those two ditches? I've seen it happen over and over again. Um, it, it is a, it's an awful thing to sit in a community group and to hear someone say things that leads a new believer into one of those two ditches. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've contributed to that as you sit around and you know that there's a new Christian in the room, in the circle, and someone begins to say things and you're going, I gotta, I gotta fix this now because you, you just started dragging them off into this ditch, whichever one it is, and now you're trying to, to pull them back up and point them to Jesus as opposed to, to what they've just experienced or heard. We've all been a part of, of these kinds of environments if we're actually engaging with unbelievers and with new Christians. And sometimes it's, it's terrible to see it unfold in the way that it does. 
So the question is, are, are you contributing to that? Or are you helping to point new believers, those coming back to the faith? We have many of those in this church. That's what church plants draw in, right? They draw in the unchurched and they draw in the de-churched. Those who don't know Jesus, those who come to love Jesus as a result of being a part of what we're doing, and, and those who come back to the church. We see those people all the time. The question is, are you pointing them to Jesus? Are you causing them to love Jesus and his gospel more? Or are you causing them to veer into one of those two ditches? Jesus goes on to paint another terrifying picture in verses 43 through 48. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See, here Jesus makes very clear that the goal is not just to um, avoid causing your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, to sin, that the goal is to put sin to death in your own life as well, that Jesus uses intentionally strong language here. And I think there are a few things that are crucial for us to grasp in light of these verses, verses 43 through 48 this morning, namely that hell is real, that Jesus is hero, and that Christianity is war. So I want to spend some time unpacking those three truths for us this morning. The first of those is that hell is real. Now, I'm I'm just going to be up front with you. We're going to spend a little bit of time on hell this morning, and that's not... Uh, a topic that a lot of people want to address. It'd be very easy to kind of just skim the surface of that and move beyond that. But I don't want to do that because Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus addresses hell three different times in this short passage. And so I, I want to do uh, due diligence to what Jesus is trying to communicate this morning. J.C. Ryle in his commentary says this, it is not possible to say too much about Christ, but it is quite possible to say too little about hell. And so let me address some things with respect to this idea, this concept, this reality known as hell. There are many in the world who don't believe in the existence of hell, and there are a number of reasons for that. Let me get very apologetic in nature for uh, the next couple of minutes and give you some reasons why um, some don't believe in hell. If you're a Christian, this will help you as you live on mission. If you're not a Christian, hopefully this will help to diffuse some of uh, the barriers for you this morning. Number one. Some argue that the concept of hell is unhealthy and in no way helps to further the cause of religion. Um, E.S. Chesson in his his statement on hell says this. He says, the concept of hell is useless and harmful. I suspect that those evangelists who continue to peddle this asinine idea are beyond redemption. He goes on to say, inculcation with such a negative entity as hell makes for intriguing books and horror movies, but does little to promote a healthy attitude toward religion. Now, here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Just because a subject isn't healthy or useful to ponder and or discuss doesn't mean that that subject doesn't represent a true reality. And in fact, Jesus seems to think that it's incredibly healthy for us to talk about this topic, to have a robust understanding 
of the concept of hell. He brings it up again three times in this very brief passage. Number two, some argue that hell doesn't exist because God doesn't exist. And I don't have time to unpack all of these in in a robust way, but I would just say this, that I think the onus is on the atheist to prove the non-existence of God here, that you have to dig behind every rock in the universe to prove that to be true, that you have to dig your way into every crevice of every every galaxy to prove that there is no God out there. And this, amongst other reasons, is why many atheists move into the realm of agnosticism, saying, I'm not confident that there isn't a God. I just don't think we can know one way or the other. Number three, some argue that hell doesn't exist because good and evil don't exist. Uh, In in his work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis addresses this issue and argues that we all have an innate sense of right and wrong, an innate sense of of good and evil, that somewhere deep within us, we know that that's true. He puts it this way. He says, whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He says, he may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining. It's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. I don't know who he's talking about there, but, but the point is, Jackie Robinson maybe? I don't know. But the point is that Lewis argues that when the tables get turned on someone who says that, they're not willing to stick to their standard. And and here's how you can know this to be true. Um, The next time someone says to you, I don't believe in a true right and wrong, I don't believe that good and evil actually exist in the world, what you can then do the minute that comes out of their mouth is you can punch them in the face as hard as you possibly can. And I promise you that it will only take seconds for them to abandon that belief. Because when, when you're the recipient of injustice, you, you begin to, to uh, march to a different beat at that point, right? And the reality is, the reason we do that, Paul says in Romans 1, is that in some sense, we all know God. Yet we deny, many of us, that he is known or even knowable. That many people don't want to be confronted with God's glory, with his demands, with his judgment, They want no part of his love, and so they suppress the truth. They suppress the thought of God actually being real. They suppress the thought that good and evil really do exist, and thus they suppress the thought that hell might be real. Lastly, number four, some argue that hell doesn't exist because it would violate the character of a loving, merciful, compassionate God. Many universalists fall into this category believing that all people will encounter only the attributes of God's love, mercy, grace, and compassion, but that um, what will be sacrificed on the altar of those things are the attributes of God's justice and his holiness. The argument goes like this. God is love, and, and love is irreconcilable with the idea of casting a person into the darkness of eternal torment. And upon first glance, that seems to sound right, right? However, What people who believe this way fail to acknowledge is that that God's love is a love permeated by his holiness. You can't separate the two. A.W. Pink puts it this way. He says, divine love is not a sentimental passion which overrides moral distinctions. God's love is a holy love. And because it is such, he hates all evil. In other words, you, you can't separate his love from his holiness and his justice. That God's holiness is diminished if he allows sin, crimes committed against him, to be swept under the rug. He should be disbarred from the bench at that point. And if God's love cannot be separated from his holiness, then to diminish his holiness is to diminish his love. That makes sense? 
So to say that hell doesn't exist is to truly diminish the attribute of God's love. Another way that we could say it is to say that God's love is made much of, not in the denial of hell, but rather in the affirmation of hell. Now that might be the one thought that you go sit with all week long, because that is deep, I think. That the brighter God's holiness shines, the brighter his love shines, as the two are inseparable. Jesus is not telling some scary folk tale to try to sober us into obedience. Jesus isn't telling us there's a monster in the closet so that we'll stay in the bed. That's not what he's doing here. Jesus believes that hell is absolutely real. He mentions it three times in this passage, and he uses the Greek word Gehenna here to explain it, to try to describe it. Literally means the Valley of Hinnom. This was a place just southwest of Jerusalem. There was a literal place called the Valley of Hinnom. And the way that it came to be in Solomon's day, as he was pursuing his harem of wives and concubines, he, he took on one of those who worshipped a god by the name of Moloch. And Moloch demanded child sacrifice. And so what happened was the Valley of Hinnom was created so that little kids could be thrown into the fire and sacrificed to the god Moloch. It's horrific, awful, disturbing imagery, right? Down the road, as the kingdom was divided, Josiah became king, and Jeremiah the prophet came along and called for reform, and Josiah responded to that. And so what they decided to do was to make the Valley of Hinnom a sewage and trash heap where they would dispose of sewage and trash and dead animals and unburied criminals. It was a way of spitting on Molech's altar, essentially. And you can imagine, the fire would always be there, unquenchable, in order to get rid of the stench. You always had to be burning something. And you can imagine why there would be worms and maggots on the scene with all of this dead, rotting stuff that existed in the heap. And Jesus says, hell's like that. It's horrific. And the symbol represents a reality far worse, that based on the scriptures, we know a few things to be true about hell. Run through these very quickly. Number one, hell is a place. It's not an idea. It's not a symbolic thing that Jesus is doing to try to scare us. It's a real place that Jesus stated in the Sermon on the Mount that it's possible for a person's whole body to go into hell. That in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke's gospel account, the rich man is described as having died been buried and in Hades, being in torment, that, that it's a place. Secondly, that it's a place of separation. That Second Thessalonians 1.9 tells us that when Jesus returns, those who don't know and love him will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Jesus says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That this is the most horrific concept of all. The idea that you would not be with God in his presence experiencing his blessing. For your life. Thirdly, hell is a place of torment. Again, consider the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that there the rich man is described as being in torment. On the one hand, we, we can't possibly know with great specificity what that's like, short of experiencing it ourselves. On the other hand, do we need to? Do we need to understand what torment really means in order to, to respond appropriately? Number four, Hell is a sentence of punishment. So there's a judicial language here. 
that it assumes a guilty verdict on its inhabitants, that God pronounces a sinner guilty in his cosmic courtroom and the sinner receives his or her sentencing, namely banishment to hell and all that hell encompasses. Again, if you're taking notes, I refer to 2 Thessalonians 1.9 here. You can write that down. And lastly, number five, hell is eternal, that Jesus uses the language of unquenchable fire and an undying worm. That in Revelation 14, 11, Jesus says the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever and ever. You're going, seriously, can we just move on? Like, why are you doing this? Do you want to grow the church? Are you serious right now? There are a lot of other passages you could go to to grow the church. But here's the reality. Um, When we talk about the horror of hell, we then get to look to a hell-enduring, Satan-crushing Savior. Okay, the the worse the bad news, the greater the hero who comes to save you from that reality. So the goal is not to sit in hell and to, to wallow in hell forever, but rather it's now to point you to the one who can save you from all of that and who loves you and, and desires deeply to save you from all of that. That if you're not a Christian, the worst thing you can do is wage war for morality's sake. The worst thing you can do is walk away and go, okay, I'm going to proverbially gouge my eye out this week because I don't want to go to hell, and God loves the good guys. God won't send the good guys to hell, so I'm going to be a good guy by fighting for a good moral record. Because the question will become, how do you know? It's a guessing game. How do you know when you've gotten there? Christianity is not a guessing game. The gospel is not a guessing game. Jesus says that your, your record cannot get you there, but I've lived perfectly on your behalf, and I've gone to hell and back to save you. I love you. I'm for you. If you'll turn to me and trust in me, in other words, if you'll stop waging war for your own moral goodness and lay down your arms and turn to me and trust in who I am, that I live the life that you could never live, that I died your death, that I endured hell for you, that I bore your sin, that I bore the wrath of God on your behalf so that he might look upon you and call you his beloved son or daughter. That that's the gospel, that Jesus is your substitute, that you don't get there on your own. I love what Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion says about Jesus as hero, he says this, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. No, it was expedient at the same time for him to undergo the severity of God's vengeance to appease his wrath and to satisfy his just judgment. He goes on to say, for this reason, he must also grapple hand to hand with the armies of hell and the dread of everlasting death that that's how much Jesus loves you. He didn't just bleed out and die. He warred with the armies of hell so that you don't have to. That's the beauty of the good news of the gospel. So if you're not a Christian, I'd implore you to lay down your arms, to stop fighting for a good moral record and to turn to the cross of Jesus Christ and trust in him as the hero who comes to save the day. If you are a professing follower of Jesus, the response is a little different. I think there are two ways that we can respond. Um, If you profess to know and love and follow Jesus, one, for some, the response must be to assess your life. So if you're not persevering in, in the waging of war with sin, if there's no fight in you at all, then the question must come to bear, is the profession of faith authentic? Because 
Philippians 1.6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That God doesn't save you and then just leave you on your own. To just wallow and, and never see flags of dominion planted for his glory in your life. That God will complete what he begins in his people. I put it to you this way. If there is no Christian growth, no fight for holiness, then there is no Christian. Let me say that again. If there is no Christian growth, no Christian fight for holiness, then there is no Christian. That fruit above the surface of the ground, if it doesn't exist, there is no healthy root of belief and faith undergirding it. But then secondly, for those who do know and love and follow Jesus, what he's calling us to is to wage war on sin that Christianity is unquestionably a war. Do you, do you view it that way? Do you, do you think of Christianity in that way? That it's an all-out war for holiness, for God's glory, for your joy. One question that we most certainly have to answer is, is Jesus actually calling us to um, dismember ourselves? Like if you, if you sin this week, um, is the sermon application for you to mutilate your body? I don't think so. I think that would go against much of what the rest of the Bible says if we interpret it that way. Remember going back to the Beautiful Mess series, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we talked about um, the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, that uh, we have a real problem if God is telling us to mutilate our bodies. If you look at Romans 6, in light of Paul sharing the gospel and talking about how we've been freed from sin's dominion, he then says in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul's saying your hands that were once used to do things that would fall under the category of heinous crimes against God, now use them to glorify God. That your feet that would lead you to places to undertake sinful acts, now use them to lead you to places to glorify God. That I'd say it to you this way, you can't present your members to God as instruments of righteousness if you dismember yourself. That doesn't even make sense, right? Not only that, just a few chapters prior to this morning's passage in Mark chapter 7, Jesus argues that the hands and the feet and the eyes are not ultimately the problem at all. If you look at Mark chapter 7, Pharisees are on the scene again causing a ruckus like they always do. And this time it's over the issue of the fact that Jesus uh, and his boys haven't washed their hands before they, they eat a meal. So the Pharisees come along and they say, why do you, why do you uh, eat with unclean, defiled hands? Don't you know the rules? Don't you, don't you know what we do around here? And Jesus responds in a couple of ways. He says, one, washing hands before meals is a tradition you guys created. It's legalism. It's not a command of God. And then secondly, he says, it's not the hands that are the problem. It's the heart. He says this in Mark 7, beginning in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, and slander, and pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. Going back to last week, we talked about root idols, that it's what's below the surface that's troubling. 
but the hand, the feet, and the eyes just help to carry out the crime. They just aid and abet, but it's the heart that desires to carry out the crime in the first place. But you might say it this way in the language of the hand and the feet and the eyes in, in this morning's passage. The heart desires sex, so the hand grabs for the remote control or the computer mouse, and the eyes lock in on the screen. The heart desires power, so the hand strikes spouse and kids. The heart desires money, so the eyes move from one work project to the next, to the next, to the next, making career ultimate. The heart desires comfort, so the feet make their way to the fridge for the next gluttonous experience. Am I the only one who's feeling convicted right now? It's ultimately the heart that drives us to sin. It's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. He's not calling us to literally dismember ourselves. But what he is doing is he's using drastic language to call us to take drastic measures to deal with our sin. Cut out the sin in your life. Tear out the sin in your life. Address patterns of sin in your life and wage war on the sin that consumes your life. Get violent if you have to for the sake of your holiness and God's glory and your intimacy with Jesus. As John Owen says it, the great Puritan in his work, The Mortification of Sin, which is a fantastic read, he says this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no, there's no time off. There's no break in the action. You're always on the battlefield in the war for holiness. It's, it's a constant battle. The enemy's not going to wave the white flag until you die or until Jesus returns. Whichever one of those comes first. So a very simple question for those of us Christians in the room. How dangerous do you perceive sin to be? I mean, how would you answer that question honestly? How dangerous do you perceive sin to be? Because the reality is if you don't see the threat, you won't wage the war. The true Christian life is you killing in you that which killed Jesus, your sin. Let me say that again. The true Christian life is you killing in you that which killed Jesus, namely your sin. You can't do it on your own. God walks with you in it. The Holy Spirit empowers it according to Romans 8. We put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And it's difficult. It's not pleasant. But it does lead to intimacy with Jesus and true joy. John Piper puts it this way in his commentary on this passage. He says, Conflict with ugly and offensive reality is not a peaceful or pleasant affair, neither on Golgotha, the hill where Jesus died, nor in your bedroom or kitchen or TV room. He says, If we are faithful, every time we meet the quivering power of sin, we meet it with a sword. No truce, no compromise, no prisoners. It's a fight to the death. That Jesus doesn't want us to justify our sin. Jesus doesn't want us to blame our sin on other people. Jesus wants us by the power of the Spirit to kill our sin for his glory and for our joy. That if you go back to last week, one of the things I said is that you are the greatest enemy of your own joy. So am I. I'm the greatest enemy of my own joy. Notice that I haven't played the Satan card very much this morning. I think oftentimes we find ourselves in those moments where it just it seems like we're losing ground. Um, we're just, uh, the, the war is 
is in front of us and we're sitting on the sidelines and sin is, is dominating us in, in ways that maybe uh, we haven't experienced in recent history. And on any of those given weeks, our response is typically, man, I hate Satan. Man, this week, Satan's just really been fill in the blank. Maybe. Maybe. But it's also just as possible, if not more, that the problem is inside that the problem is internal, that the problem is the heart that still has residual hostility toward the king who's trying to plant flags of dominion for your joy. So how do you fight? What does that look like? Let me just throw out some practical ideas that I came up with in terms of what the fight might look like. If you're actually going to engage in this war for your soul, for your holiness, if you're actually going to fight for intimacy with King Jesus, what what does that look like? What are some things you can do? Number one, You and I can agree with God that our sin is sin. Like King David in Psalm 51, there was an acknowledgement against you and you alone have I sinned, God. I see it. I acknowledge it, that it it is sin in my life. I'm not going to blame shift. I'm not going to try to justify it. I'm not going to try to minimize or diminish it. I'm going to own it, and I'm going to look to you and, and confess it as what it truly is. For others of us, it's asking the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, And we can't acknowledge it because we're not convicted of it. We've grown cold uh, in in terms of our conscience. Um, We've grieved the Holy Spirit, and and now when we sin, uh, we don't even acknowledge the reality of of what we're doing in those moments. It's asking the Spirit of God to bring about conviction in our hearts and in our lives. It's surrounding ourselves with community. We cannot do it alone. It's impossible to wage war for your holiness in isolation. You cannot do that. That would be as foolish as going into a real physical battle on the battlefield alone. Doesn't matter how many bullets you have, when you face another army, you will lose. That God intends us to link arms with other Christians to do this thing um, as a family, as a as a set of troops, you might say, that God wants us to move forward, that you can't see your blind spots on your own, that I can't see my blind spots on my own, that they're called blind spots for a reason. We need other people in our lives speaking into our lives, helping us to see the reality of who we are and where the battle really lies. It also involves confessing our sin to one another, that there's an element in which uh, people may not be aware of what you're dealing with, that you bringing into the light, out of darkness, the reality of what the war looks like for you is huge. And you've really got to believe that your identity is rooted in Christ to do this, right? Because if you believe that your identity is rooted in what other people think about you, you will never confess the darkest parts of the war in your life. But if you really truly believe that Jesus died for you and that when God the Father looks upon you, he says, you are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. If you believe that, functionally at a heart level, it frees you to be able to open up and confess things and bring to light things that will help you to actually wage war as others help you to engage that. Just a few more. Waging the war requires time in the scriptures that according to Ephesians 6, the Bible is the sword of the spirit. That's your weapon. You get to wield that against the attack. That every piece of truth in the scriptures is like a sharpened blade that you get to swing in the midst of the war, in the midst of the attack. That it involves spending time in prayer. 
talking to God, actually vocalizing where you are in all of this, not just confessing to your brothers and sisters, but talking to God and saying, this is where the struggle is for me. Holy Spirit, I need you. I'm dependent upon you. I'm needy in this area of my life. I'm the infant. I'm the one who needs your help, God. Will you please engage this with me? And engaging in celebratory conversation with God as you see sin defeated in your life. Thanking him for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as you make those strides. And then lastly, coming up with a war strategy. The worst thing you can do as a commander leading people onto the battlefield is say, we're just going to wing it, guys. We're just going to see how it goes. No, you have a strategy. You go in and you seek to implement that strategy. And the same is true for your life, that you come up with a strategy. If you know that ground is gained against you in the war for holiness um, at, at a certain time of night when you're more prone to, to look at things that would be dishonoring to your king, whether it be on a computer screen or a television screen, then you implement a strategy to war against the weakness in your life. And I could give a number of different examples there, but you guys get where I'm going with that, that there are ways that you can strategize and call other brothers and sisters into that strategy with you to fight for your holiness, to fight for your joy. This is my prayer this morning. And you'll hear this at the end of the morning in the benediction itself even. My prayer is that as a church, we would be known as spirit-empowered sin killers. That's, that's a vision that I have for this church, that we would be known as spirit-empowered sin killers, that people who are being bludgeoned by sin in our community and the surrounding areas would find hope here, that they would see a people who are excited about waging war against sin for the sake of their joy and for the sake of God's glory. Because there is a missional bent to this. Jesus goes on as we close this morning in verses 49 and 50 to say this, He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That Jesus is saying, going back to the fall, uh, if you were around for the Beatitudes sermon series, we talked about uh, this idea. Jesus said that you're the light of the world and, and that you are the salt of the earth. And I unpacked a little bit of that. Let me bring us back around to that, that um, there's a missional bent to you warring against sin. Um, that says that you're like salt. Number one, you have a preserving effect. We live in a world that is decaying, that's spiraling toward death in in the wake of the entrance of sin and suffering into the world. Um, Back in Genesis 3, we now live in a world that's, that's filled with rot and decay. Just like salt functions as a preservative to spoiling, rotting food, the Christian warring against sin in their lives functions as a preservative in a rotting, decaying world. That when you war against sin, you actually combat the effects of the fall in Genesis 3. You contribute less and less to the spiritual decay yourself, and you, you help to bring preservation to the world around you that's, that's decaying, that's rotting. Secondly, you have a healing effect. Right? We all know that salt has the ability to heal wounds, right? Um, when you're on the beach and you scrape your knee up, you step on a seashell and cut open the bottom of your, your foot, you, you probably don't run for the first aid kit, do you? You run for the ocean because we know that the salt water has a healing effect. In the same way, when you war against your sin, you function as a healing agent because, one, you experience fewer wounds in your own life caused by your own sin, and, two, you contribute less and less to wounding others around you. 
That makes sense. Number three, like salt, you have a seasoning effect. So we all know that salt makes everything taste better, right? Some of us who are trying to lose weight, we use less and less of it, and yet we know we're eating food that's a little more bland than the world around us. There's something seasoning about salt. There's something savory about salt. In the same way, when you war against sin, you give people a taste of what freedom is like, what true joy is like as you pursue intimacy with King Jesus who has freed you by his cross. You help the world to see the blandness of their sin. They find themselves hungering for the kind of joy that you have, the kind of life that's not in bondage to the blandness of sin. And then lastly, you have a thirst-provoking effect on people. You eat something salty, and you're guaranteed to become thirsty. That's how salt works, right? Salt makes us thirsty. And in the same way, when you war against sin, you help people to see that they're spiritually parched, that they're dying of thirst in the desert of their sin, and they need the living water, Jesus. That this passage has a bent toward the gospel, community, and mission. Three things that we value tremendously around here. That the gospel is us warring against sin and idols as we grow and look to the person and work of Jesus for hope in our lives. That's the gospel piece. That's verses 43 through 48. That there's the community piece in verse 42, that Jesus wants us to live in community with other believers in such a way that we cause them not to sin, but to love Jesus and his gospel more. That we don't bring reproach reproach on the gospel by leading people into the ditch of legalism or license. And three, that there's the missional piece of it in verses 49 through 50, that Jesus wants us to be salt to a spiritually decaying, wounded, bland, parched world who's looking in on us as the church. So the final question this morning is this, will you war against sin by the power of the Holy Spirit with others on mission? In a moment, we're going to take communion. This is for all the Christians in the room. We, we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus together as a church. We take the bread here and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. And as we do so, um, if you're a Christian, I would put these questions before you under the banners of gospel, community, and mission. Under the banner of the gospel, is there a fight for holiness? If not, there might be a professed Christianity but not a true Christianity. And this is crucial where we live. This is the land of cultural Christians, right? So I wanna make sure and address this often. Is there a fight? Is there a war being waged? I'm not saying it has to be quick. I'm not looking for perfection here, but is Jesus planting flags of dominion in, in your life as he conforms you more and more into his image, which he promises in Romans 8? Secondly, under the banner of the gospel, what sin might God be calling you to war against very practically? And what might it look like for you to do so? Ask God to give you a vision for what the war against sin in your life might look like. Under the banner of community, are you pointing others in the church toward Jesus or toward the ditch of legalism and or license? And under the banner of mission, what effect would it have on our city? on those who don't know Jesus, if we actually live as spirit-empowered sin killers in a fight for God's glory and our joy. Understanding that the war has already been won. That's what the gospel says, right? We're not, we're not warring for God's love, for God's acceptance. We're, we're warring out of a position of God's love and acceptance in Christ. 
And that actually empowers the fight. If you're not a Christian, my prayer for you this morning is incredibly simple. It's that you would come face to face with the reality that hell is real and that you're on a fast track toward that reality and that you would see Jesus as a sufficient savior to save you from that reality who went to hell and back so that you don't have to, who lived the life that you can't live, who died your death, who endured hell on your behalf so that you could experience the love and grace and mercy of God and that you would turn to that sufficient savior in faith and trust in him. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.